The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen. And good evening. It is so wonderful to see all of you here tonight. Are you ready to feast at the table of God's faithfulness tonight? Mm. I am so excited to open the word with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we'll be spending our time as we continue to work our way through this wonderful New Testament book. Men, tonight I want to talk to you on this subject. The title of my message is Bringing Heaven Down to Earth. Bringing Heaven Down to Earth. Now, in the second half of Paul's letter to the Colossians, that's where we're at here as we move into chapter 3. We're moving into a section that is moving beyond the theological truths now into a very practical section where he's going to begin to talk about how to apply these theological truths to our lives. You could say that the first part of Paul's letter deals with our who, who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, and the second half of his letter focuses on our do. So in light of who God is and how he's made you and what he's done in your life, this is how you should then live. And he begins in verse one by saying, since then, You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And I've given as a heading for this first verse, heaven in our hearts. Since you have been raised with Christ. Paul is telling us that as believers, we now have and enjoy a brand new framework by which we can reference the rest of our lives. Right, as a believer, since you've put your faith in Jesus, you've been raised with Christ in newness of life, and so you continue to live down here on earth, but at the same time, this world is no longer your primary residence. Heaven is your eternal home. Heaven is where you draw your citizenship from. You're governed by heaven's laws, submitted to heaven's king, loyal to heaven's throne. And so it's these heavenly thoughts that pervade our lives. And it's it's heaven that drives our prayers and our politics. It's heaven that influences our livelihoods and our personal lives and our dating lives and everything. It's heaven. So consequently, Paul tells us to set our hearts on things above. When he says, set your heart, the word he uses there in the Greek, it's a word that means to seek intently. It's the same word that Jesus used in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 33, he said, seek first the kingdom of God. And in both verses, the word is written in the present tense, which describes a continuous and ongoing action. So we're to seek heaven in every aspect of our lives. Now, at this point, perhaps some of you are thinking, I thought you said we were going to get practical in the second half of this book. I mean, thinking about heaven doesn't sound very practical, right? If all I did was sit around and daydream about heaven all day long, I probably wouldn't get much done. Am I right? Johnny Cash even had a song that said, you're shining your light 
and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. <laughs> and I understand where he was coming from. I understand that sentiment. And perhaps there are some who just drift off and live in the clouds and their, their feet aren't firmly planted on the ground. However, I also want to add that I personally believe that when a person is truly captivated by heaven, it will motivate them to do more on earth. They will accomplish more down here, not less. And history is filled with examples of people who made their mark on, on this earth because they were living for the next life. They were motivated by heaven. My dad was one of those people. I can't think of a guy who is more excited about heaven than my dad. In fact, it was just a couple of weeks ago that a friend texted me and said, oh, I was just listening to your dad on the radio and he was talking about heaven. And he had the glee and excitement of a kid who's on his way to Disneyland. The cool thing about that is when she texted me that, I was actually at Disneyland with my family. So I snapped a picture of all of us and sent it to her and I said, you'll never believe where we are right now. But it was really administered to my heart, thinking of my dad, you know, when the scriptures talk about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think about heaven a lot these days. And, you know, I treasured my relationship with my dad, which I guess means that part of my heart is waiting for me up in heaven. Amen. The Apostle Paul was another great example of someone who was motivated by heaven. It's what compelled him. It's what drove him. It's what got him out of bed each and every morning. And that's significant because when you look at Paul's life, nobody did more or accomplished more than he did. He essentially helped pastor dozens of churches that became the, the, the spark that, that caused a fire to spread around the early ancient world. He changed the world, and it was principally and precisely because he knew that heaven was real, and that's what motivated him. I love what C.S. Lewis had to say on this point. In his book, Mere Christianity, here's what he wrote. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is because Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. <laughs> we need to be motivated by heaven, have heavenly affections. Paul goes on in verse 2 to say, but also set your minds on things above and not on things earth. So in verse 1, the focus is on our hearts. But in verse 2, Paul encourages us also to set our minds on things above as well. Now, you'll notice when you read your Bible that it has a lot to say on the subject of our thought life. The Bible is constantly talking about and telling us how to frame our thoughts. And perhaps that's because our thought life has so much to do with the rest of our life. Everything we do essentially stems from what we think. I read once that on average, a person thinks 50,000 thoughts a day. That's a lot. If you were to run inventory on those thoughts, though, I wonder what would that tell you about your life? What would the dominating themes be? Research that has been done in this area suggests that most of our thoughts are negative in nature. 
Furthermore, it tells us that most of the thoughts we think today are the same ones that we thought yesterday. We suffer from a lot of stinking thinking. And that's why Paul exhorts us here in verse two to set our minds on things above. It's something that you have to manually do each and every day when you wake up. You have to set and then reset and reprogram your thoughts to be heavenly minded. We need a heavenly mindset. Your mindset is something that matters a whole lot. It's a little thing that makes a big difference in your life. If you have the right mindset, you'll be able to overcome challenges and achieve goals and walk in victory. It can change your whole life. Of course, the challenge is we're constantly being inundated and bombarded by worldly messaging with messages that promote worldly thinking and worldly values and worldly priorities. You don't have to go looking for it. It just comes at you from every direction. The world is trying to continuously squeeze us into a pattern or a mold. And so Paul here gives us good advice on how to combat that. He says that we need to continuously and consciously train our minds to think heaven's thoughts. We need to choose to align our thoughts with heaven's values and priorities. I heard a story about a B-10 bomber pilot who was flying on one of his missions in the Second World War. And while he was flying, he began to hear a troubling sound. He heard scratching and nibbling noises coming from somewhere on the plane. Almost immediately, he knew the cause of the sounds. Pilots know every sound in their plane, and so he recognized that this was a stowaway. He had a rat that had snuck onto the plane and was nibbling on something. His mind begins to race. He's fearing that the rat might be chewing on important wires or perhaps even brake lines. But what could he do about it? Then he had a thought, a brilliant thought. He flipped on his oxygen mask and began to pull back on the steering column, and his plane began to climb higher and higher and higher. And as his elevation increased, the oxygen levels decreased, and the chewing began to get less and less until it stopped completely. What happened? Well, the rat had died due to high altitude and lack of oxygen. Let's apply that little anecdote to our own lives. How often do you find yourself being plagued by troubling thoughts, anxious thoughts, fearful thoughts, depressing thoughts, overwhelming thoughts? They're like rats that chew on the wires of our minds. The solution? Like that pilot, we need to climb to higher elevations. You see, those thoughts can't survive at heavenly altitudes. And this is why it's so important that you develop and then maintain a a habit of opening up God's word. And I would recommend that you do it first thing in the morning. This is how you start your day with heaven. When you read God's word, you're getting heaven's thoughts, heaven's values, heaven's priorities, heaven's thinking. And when you align your thought life with what this book says, man, it'll change your whole outlook and your whole world. So Paul says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Have a heavenly mindset. And then in verses three and four, he goes on to say this, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. 
So I love this too. Heaven, we don't just need to be heavenly in our affections or heavenly minded, but also we need to remember that heaven is our home. And Paul here addresses both our past and our present and our future. And it's all linked to Jesus. He says, you died with him. That's your past. You were risen up with him into this new life in which you're now living. And what's more, when he appears, when he comes back, because Jesus made a promise, didn't he? He said, in my father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And he says, I'm going there so that where I am, there you may be also. So he's coming back, and Paul says, when he appears again, we will be with him. And I would love for us to read this scripture together out loud. It's in your notes, and we'll put it on the screen. It says this, for the Lord himself, read it with me, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Oh, that sounds so good. Praise the Lord. First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. I'm just waiting to hear that shout, hear the trump of God caught up together to be with the Lord. This is the blessed hope of every believer that when he appears, then you also will appear with him. That should motivate us to live for him. You see, life is short and eternity is long and people matter. So live your life now in such a way that it will reverberate throughout all of eternity. I wanted to read this poem to you. This is a poem by a guy named C.T. Studd. He was born into a well-to-do family in England way back in 1860, but after attending college, he decided to enter the missions field, and he spent the rest of his life serving the Lord in China and Africa and India, and he was famous for saying this, some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Love C.T. Studd, just a wonderful saint. But he wrote this poem that I think captures the sentiment of what I've been trying to say to you. It's called, Only One Life Will Soon Be Passed. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Isn't that beautiful? What a great reminder to live with an eternal perspective to live for heaven. That's what Paul encourages us to do. And then he goes on in verse 5 to say this. He says, put to death, therefore. So in light of heaven, you have a responsibility down here. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of the creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and is in all. So Paul turns the corner. He's been talking about heaven. And now he says, we have a job to do while we're still here on earth. And I, I have titled this section Heavenly Assassins, because that's what Paul calls us to be. He says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly sinful nature. And that's a violent metaphor. Paul doesn't pull any punches here, but I think he does this on purpose. He's, he, he's this way because he needs to be. You see, far too often, I, I feel that we, and I'm speaking here in general terms, are just far too cavalier when it comes to sin. We toy with it. We play with it. We flirt with it. But God is clear in his word. His desire is that we kill it that we're ruthless with it. I've heard it said like this, either you will be killing sin or it will be killing you. Don't underestimate the power of sin. I remember reading a story a few years back about a woman, an Indiana woman, who died when her eight-foot python snake wrapped itself around her neck and cut off her ability to breathe. The snake was just one of 20 that she had in her house. I guess they had free reign. They were her pets, and she thought they loved her. She had raised these snakes from the time that they were young, and she thought she knew them. But one night, this little snake had grown over the years, and one night while she was sleeping, the snake slipped into her bed and slowly and silently wrapped itself around her neck and strangled her. It's a sad story, a tragic 
story, but it's also a story that I think accurately portrays what sin does. You see, if you toy with sin long enough, it's only a matter of time before it begins to constrict and kill. In the Proverbs, Solomon asked this question, can a man bring fire into his lap and not get burned? The obvious answer is, of course, no. And Paul, he doesn't mince words. He says, sin kills. It kills everything it touches. It kills relationships. It kills careers. It kills families. It kills intimacy. It kills joy. And that's why we need to kill it, amen? Jesus was just as radical in the language that he used about sin and our relationship to it. He said this in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. He said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Both Paul and Jesus make the same point. We need to be radical in eliminating sin from our lives. If your smartphone is getting you in trouble, then let me just suggest that you get a dumb phone. If your friends are leading you down a bad path, find some new friends. If where you live, your neighborhood, your neighbors, your career, whatever it is, whatever is pulling you away from the Lord, get radical with those things. That's what these verses are encouraging here. And in five, verse 5, Paul gets really specific and names some of the sins that we need to ruthlessly eliminate. And they fall into some groupings. The first three that he mentions all fall under the, the category of sexual sins, an area where so many are prone to fall. In fact, the word that he uses there for sexual immorality, when he says, cut this off, put it to death, the word that he uses there in the Greek is, is the word porneia, same word from which we get our word pornography from, obviously. You know, I was, I was looking up some of these statistics and was just shocked. And perhaps this will come as a surprise to some of you as well. But did you know that the average age when a kid first sees pornography is, is age 11? So sad. The same statistics tell us that porn revenue in America exceeds the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. It's a $6.2 billion industry. Just think about it like this. It's conceivable that on any given night, just by watching cable TV, we're not talking about other stuff. I'm not even talking about you know HBO or these things, but just on cable TV, it's possible that you'll be exposed to more sensual and sexual scenes than your grandparents saw in an entire lifetime. Some people say, ah, oh, what's the big deal? It doesn't hurt anybody. It's not doing anybody else any harm. Well, the big deal is that this sin is, is destroying families. It's destroying our country. It's robbing people of their intimacy with God, and it's destroying marriages. And I just want to speak to anyone in here who might be struggling in this area that there is hope, and there is healing, and there is grace in Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. 
and you don't have to fight this battle on your own, I would suggest to you that you do whatever it takes, that you get radical with your sin, just like Paul talked about, that you get in an accountability group, that you put safeguards on your devices if that's what's needed. But whatever it takes, we need to get radical with our sin and cut off those areas that are pulling us away from Jesus. After talking about sexual sin, Paul mentions greed, which he associates with idolatry. He says this is worshiping a false god. Now, whenever we talk about sins that we're struggling with, I don't ever hear anybody really mention greed. I think it's because it's one of the sins that's more difficult to spot in ourselves. It's, it's a natural blind spot for most of us. Nobody sees themselves as greedy. Well, what is greed? It's just wanting more than you have. It's not being satisfied with what God has given to you. And, and we live in a society where we're constantly you know, being encouraged to compare what we have with what everyone else has. And through social media and everything else, it just drives our greed. So how do you deal with that? How do you get rid of it? And where's the line? How do I know if I'm being greedy? People always say, well, well if, am I being greedy? If, if, is it this number? Or can I make this much? Or, What's the number? And I, I really don't think it comes down to a number. It's, it's a personal thing. It's whatever replaces trust in your heart, right? So for one person, if they get $1,000, they're going to replace trusting in Jesus with trusting in that $1,000, and that's too much for them. For others, it might be they can handle a million dollars, and they're still just freely giving to the Lord and giving to the church and giving to the needs and causes of Christ, and, and it's nothing to them. And so it's not a number, but it's a heart issue. In verses 8 and 9, Paul goes on to, to, to list another grouping or category of sins. These are sins which Warren Wiersbe refers to as the social sins. He calls them social sins because, for the most part, they're socially acceptable. People don't tend to look down on people who struggle with these things as much as they do those people who struggle with the first grouping. But that doesn't mean that God is okay with them. See, and I think part of the problem here is that we've redefined what some of these sins are. We don't say, I struggle with anger or rage or malice. No, no, we just write those things off as, ah, it's just my Irish temper, or I was just blowing off steam. We don't call it slander anymore. We slide that under the guise of prayer. We gossip about people and then cover our tracks by just saying, well, I'm only telling you that about so-and-so so you can pray for them. <laughs> but you've really got to hear what they're doing, let me tell you. We don't call it lying. We just say we're joking, or we're fibbing, we're telling a half-truth. Paul says all of that stuff, it needs to go. We need to be heavenly assassins and take that stuff out. And then he goes on, and in verses 9 and 10, he says, you need to, to put off the old self with his practices and then put on the new self. Here, Paul is, is using language that describes changing clothes. He's talking about our new heavenly outfits. I don't know if you're into fashion or not, but I guess the Apostle Paul was. And you know how it is when you take a shower, when you've cleaned up, you don't want to run back and throw on those dirty, grubby clothes that you were just maybe working in the yard in, and they're all smelly and full of mud. No, no, that would defeat the purpose of the shower. Once you shower, you want to get in nice, new, clean clothes. 
In the same way as Christians, Paul is saying, you've been washed, you've been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. And so it would be foolish to try to continue to walk around in old habits, old attitudes, old sins. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he left his grave clothes behind. In fact, when Peter and John ran to the tomb and they looked in, it says that they saw the grave clothes lying there. Jesus was communicating. He was preaching even in that moment. He had left the grave clothes behind. He had risen and was wearing new heavenly garments. Similarly, you remember the story when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, his good friend. And he grieved there, but then he called him out and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Remember that poignant scene? And the Bible tells us that when Lazarus came out in obedience to what Jesus said, he was still bound in his grave clothes. Can you imagine the shock and surprise on everyone's faces as they see Lazarus, kind of this mummified, living now person? He's been dead four days, and he's just kind of you know, coming out of the grave. And it says he had wrappings around his face and covering his eyes and his hands and his feet. An interesting picture. Then Jesus gave his second command, which was to loose him and let him go. And those around him began to unwrap the grave clothes from Lazarus. I think this is a powerful picture for us. Only Jesus can bring life from death. Only Jesus can issue the command, Lazarus, come forth. Only Jesus can breathe new life into a dead soul. But then he turns to us as his church, and he says, now, this new believer, they're still wrapped up. They're still bound by some old habits that relate to their former life. They, they've still got some grave clothes on, and it's, it's your job. I'm calling on you to help loose them, help set them free. And that's the picture. The grave clothes represent the old life. And some of us are still walking around like mummies. And Jesus is saying, it's time to let go of the grave clothes and walk in newness of life. It's time for a new wardrobe. And we get a picture of this in verses 12 through 14, where Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. These are the, the virtues or the attributes that ought to adorn the believer. Paul tells us specifically that these are the things we ought to clothe ourselves in, things like compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness. Beautiful, beautiful things to adorn your soul with. Compassion. It's thinking of others, prioritizing their needs above your own. Kindness. That's a word that doesn't need much explanation, does it? In a world full of meanies, God's kids stand out when they extend kindness to one another. He talks about humility and meekness. These were two virtues that in, in Paul's day, nobody looked at or admired. 
any more back then than they do today. But nothing makes you look more like Jesus than when you are meek and humble. In fact, those are two qualities and characteristics that Jesus ascribed to himself. Walking in forgiveness. Why? You say, I don't, I can't. I, even if I wanted to, I couldn't forgive them for what they did to me. And he says, no, no, no. Listen to the last part. Forgive them even as Jesus forgave you. You see, Jesus forgave you and loved you and laid down his life for you, not when you were loving him or praising him. No, no, no. The Bible says while we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. And Jesus now turns to us and he says, I want you to extend that same forgiveness to others that you yourself have received. That's the extent of the forgiveness that we're called to walk in as his kids. And you say, but I can't do it. It's impossible. You're right. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the person who has surrendered to Jesus. So these are the things we clothe ourselves in. And then he tops it all off by saying, and over all of these virtues, put on love. It binds them all together. I remember when my, my kids were little, you know, toddlers and babies, and my wife used to carry them around on her hip, and, and she would say, you know, our kids make the perfect accessory to any outfit. <laughs> and she was right. They did. Tied the whole thing together. And Paul says the same thing to us here about the love of God. It's like that piece de resistance that you add to your outfit, and it just, it's like, oh, that's it. It's perfect. Walking in love, showing love, extending love to others. Sometimes at award shows, I think we're in awards season. I, I don't tend to watch too many of those, but sometimes I'll sit down with my wife, and she loves to watch the red carpet. And they always walk up to someone on the red carpet, and they'll say, who are you wearing? You know that question. Not what, but who. And you'll, they'll list the designer. And I think we ought to live in such a way that when people see us, they're inspired to ask, who are you wearing? And we can tell them, you like it? It's Jesus. Do you see Jesus in me? You see, Paul the Apostle, he said I like this in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Not just put on humility, not just put on kindness, don't just put on meekness, don't just put on love, but in Romans 13, 14, he kind of ties it all together. And again, I'd love it if we could read this scripture together out loud. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. What a beautiful thought. Just walking around. We're all in Jesus. We've been raised with Jesus. We're looking for Jesus. And even when we talk about living from a heavenly mindset, Paul talks about live for the things above where Christ is seated. Jesus is the treasure of heaven. He's the centerpiece of heaven. Read Revelation chapters 4, 5, and 6 sometime where you get this depiction, this description of the heavenly scene. You know what's at the center of heaven? It's the throne, and on the throne sits the Lamb, and, and all the people, and all the focus, and all the attention goes to him, and the, the 24 elders, and the angels, and a throng of 10,000 times 10,000 of saints take their crowns, and they cast them down at the feet of Jesus. And they say together, worthy is the lamb. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb. This is the life we've been called into. It's beautiful. 
By God's grace, he's forgiven us and called us into this life. And the question for us is, are we walking in this life the way God has called us to? You see, this text forces us to wrestle with some great questions. Are we being driven and motivated by a heavenly mindset? Or are we still earthly in our thinking? Are there sins that we're playing with, that we've been toying with, that God is calling us to put to death? And then what, or perhaps I should say who, are you wearing? Are there any old garments that you've been holding on to that God says, you know, that look is so yesterday. Those grave clothes need to go. It's time to walk in the newness of life that I died to secure for you. And how do we do that? By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who's gone before us. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's cheering us on. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for this word and this time that we've had to spend together. We're reminded yet again that there's only one life that we get to live. We get one trip, and it'll soon be past. And only what we do for Christ will last. Lord, I repent in front of my brothers and sisters for the ways in which I've allowed myself to become distracted in my thinking, to become earthbound in my thinking, Lord. Would you recalibrate me? Would you recalibrate us? Would you transform us by the renewing of our minds as we deliberately, consciously, and continuously choose to fix our eyes on Jesus, to meditate on the scriptures, to be consumed with the things above? Would you draw us in, Lord, so that we're captivated by you? And it's not a chore, but it's a delight to know you, to love you, to be compelled by the promise that you're coming back soon. We pray and ask all these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.